You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. We all know that the human body comes in all different shapes and sizes. However, most firearms do not. That is why Savage Arms has rolled out their AccuFit system on the 110 platform. AccuFit uses interchangeable components that allow hunters to custom fit both comb height and the length of pull without taking their rifle to a gunsmith. In fact, the only tool you need is a Phillips head screwdriver. If you want to find out more information about the AccuFit customization system, visit savagearms.com. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode 35. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Brett Anderson, and Brett is one of the co-founders of 2% Certified Outside Analytics. Uh, and for those of you who may not be familiar, Outside Analytics offers uh, a, a mapping service, an app called Outly. Um, <clears throat> And it's a, it's a really cool tool, uh, as many of you um, hunters and anglers and just general outdoor um, that enjoy just general outdoor recreation are familiar with um, the type of service, the, the type of app that I'm referring to. Um, one of the really cool things um, about Outly, and Brett touches on this and talks more in depth about this, is all of the different components that go into it and everything that it offers someone who's trying to plan um, a hunt, uh, a fishing trip, uh, any type of activity outdoors, dispersed camping, um, you know, any any type of outdoor um, activity that you want to get involved in, uh, Outly uh, can be very critical and very useful tool uh, for you uh, in the planning process. Uh, Brett and I also get into, you know, how he was introduced to the outdoors and growing up in Colorado there and, and how, how much of an influence that played on him, uh, at an early age, uh, got away from it for a little bit. And then, and then when he was in college, got back into it. And it's funny how the, the whole story of, uh, outside analytics works, um, and you know, what they, what they do on the side or the other parts of their business aside from Outly um, and how they use that to fund Outly and to continue to develop and enhance this tool um, 
for outdoorsmen and outdoors women. So it's uh, if you haven't, definitely be sure to check out Outly. Uh, there's a lot of great features, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. But before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to take a second and let you guys all know that I had kind of teased it um, in my Instagram story uh, late last week. But we have, and I'm well, I'm excited to announce that we have a new partner on the podcast, um, and it, it is a company that many of you are likely familiar with, uh, and that is Go Hunt. Uh, I'm really excited to be partnering with Go Hunt on the podcast. Uh, they're a company who obviously is 2% certified, does a lot of great work uh, for conservation. And uh, between myself and them, we share a lot of the same goals and interests as far as the outdoors and conservation is concerned. Uh, so definitely be sure to stay tuned uh, in coming episodes um, for some promo codes and things like that to uh, you know help you guys with your um, future um insider subscription and you know some codes for the gear shop and everything so really excited to uh to have gohan on board and look forward to what we can bring you guys in the future all right joining me on the line today i have the co-founder of two percent certified company outside analytics brett anderson brett how's it going today uh it's going well how are you doing marcus i'm doing well i uh, i appreciate you making some time uh to to sit down and, and tell us a little bit more about outside analytics yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be on and looking forward to chatting. Yeah, definitely. So we kind of talked about it, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit here before we started recording, but I kind of like to start off all the conversations and just get a little bit of an understanding um, and background uh, in terms of the outdoors and what that looked like for you. So kind of tell me about that. Like, were you introduced to the outdoors as a, at a young age or something later on in life? What did that look like for you? Yeah, it's it's interesting looking back kind of the I'd say the roller coaster of my outdoors experience. Um, honestly, I was born into it. So I was in hindsight, fortunate to have um, parents that love the outdoors. So we grew up camping, fishing, hunting, skiing, and honestly didn't know any better. I just thought that was kind of what everyone did. So um, I had a dad that worked hard in construction all week. He was a ski instructor on the weekends. And so brought up with that kind of work hard, play hard mentality. And then almost every weekend we were out in the woods or on the mountains, um, lakes, rivers, doing something outdoor related. So like I said earlier, I pretty much didn't know better. Um, and in hindsight, I was really privileged to have that special opportunity to grow up just being part of the outdoors. And then I, I think it was funny because, it, you know, looking back, there's um, a bit of when you have that privilege of growing up in the outdoors, you can kind of take it for granted. And I saw that a little bit where growing up, like I said, I thought it was just part of a way of life and then went off to college and didn't participate as much in the outdoors but met a bunch of people that didn't grow up in the outdoors, but were interested in it. Didn't know where to get started, how to go about doing things, um, especially activities like hunting that have a pretty big barrier to entry. If you're not brought up in a family that hunts or have mentors that guide you, it's hard to get started. So I think it wasn't until college when I almost stepped away from being embedded in the, in outdoor activities as much. Um, that I really started to appreciate it and then get others from there on, friends, 
coworkers um, kind of became a passion. I got more, more into backpacking, archery, backcountry hunting, um, kind of a whole rekindled relationship with the outdoors that was more passionate and even deeper than originally when I was growing up and really transformed into helping get others out there and teaching them the ropes. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting story. And I, I feel like that, that my upbringing was, was very similar in terms of like, you know, just, I had a dad who was super big into the outdoors. He was big into hunting, big into fishing at a very young age. My parents got my sister and I into skiing. So we did that a lot. Uh, like kind of like you said, on the weekends, things like that, we would take some trips, uh, out West to go skiing as a family. And then it just, it's almost, and, and I grew up in, in a fairly rural area. So, I mean, I was surrounded by, you know, woods and lakes. And I mean, if I wanted to hunt or fish, I mean, 10, 15 minutes from the house and, and I was in it. And then just like you, I got to college and kind of stepped away from it. Um, just with what I had going on in school, it just didn't allow me time to really get into the outdoors. And then post-college, um, some stuff transpired in my life that kind of rekindled um, this love and this passion for the outdoors. And it, it's it's cool to see how, and I think you kind of touched on it and probably feel the same way that, you know, when, when you're not in it all the time and you kind of take it for granted. And then when you get older in life, it, it, it it's amazing how one little thing or, or just, um, you know, a new group of friends or coworkers, whatever the case is. And all of a sudden it's like, oh man, like I, I kind of, not necessarily forgot. Well, maybe, uh, maybe you kind of forgot a little bit about how much you love the outdoors and just everything that it offers. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like so now in hindsight, I kicked myself. I had so much free time in college. I think my senior year I had, you know, I had classes three days a week and had four day weekends. And I had so much time that, I mean, I was busy with school and busy focusing on social aspects of, of college, but I really kicked myself for not spending more of the time that I had during college. Um, getting out there and using that time to just be outside more and do more of those activities that I love now, but trying to with busy work life and family life now, trying to make the most of it and still get out there as much as I can now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's funny how that kind of works. Like you get, you know, you, you immerse yourself back into the outdoors and then, you know, you have a, you have a wife, you have a family and kids and stuff like that. And all of a sudden you got to kind of scale it back a little bit to be able to spend time with them. And then, you know, you know, your kids get to an age where you can start introducing them to the outdoors. So it's kind of a, an up and down roller coaster uh, in terms of being able to actually spend as much time outdoors as you want. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm loving it now. My kids are getting to the age where they're independent. Um, they're seven and nine, almost eight and 10. So starting to fish hunt, they can actually hike. We went on a, uh, almost five mile backpacking trip last summer to about 11,500 feet down in the Sanger de Cristos kind of in South central Colorado. And I mean, it's amazing to get to a point where now you can pass that on to your kids and they can start to enjoy it and appreciate it and hopefully not take it for granted a little bit like I did early on, but that might just be part of the, the overall life cycle and the experience. Yeah. And hopefully that, that they grow up and they just think that, you know, an outdoor lifestyle, like that's just, that's just normal, right? Just like you were raised. Yep, exactly. So and hoping, you, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, hoping that I can 
somehow find ways to pass on my appreciation. You know, I think you just have to go through it and learn for yourself, but hopefully since I've gone through that life cycle, I can pass some back on to my kids and maybe they'll have a, an earlier appreciation for it. Yeah. Now you guys are based there. Uh, outside analytics is based there in Colorado. Is that, are you born and raised, uh, in Colorado there? I am. I'm actually born and raised in the foothills just west of Denver. So kind of close to town and fairly populated areas, but then outdoors are kind of right in your backyard. I mean, we grew up, had deer and elk in my yard every day where we grew up in a little town, Evergreen. Yeah, uh, for west sure. I know where that is. But still couldn't quite fish and hunt really close to, to home. Um, always had to go or usually typically we'd go west of the divide um, over to the western slope and the mountains and national forest to go do outdoor activities, but still relatively close. I mean, an hour to two hour drive and we were could be as remote as we wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually uh, just in Evergreen um, this past summer. Um, we have uh, friends that live in Denver and we usually try to get out there once or twice a year, whether uh, it's in the winter and, and go out there and do some skiing for kind of a long weekend or a week or something like that. But uh, this past summer, we did kind of a, a Western road trip and and stayed uh, with some friends in Denver. And there's a, like a little like reservoir type lake uh, right in Evergreen there where we've got our friends have a couple young kids. My wife and I have two young kids. So like, you know, it's, it was a good place for them to just kind of walk around and just let them feel like they were kind of on a hike. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good old Evergreen Lake. It's been amazing growing up in Evergreen over the past, you know, 40 years just to see it transform from a small mountain town to now, you know, there's big houses and um, it's changed, but it still has that semi-rural mountain town um, feel if if you look for it. So yeah, I grew up um, fishing on Evergreen Lake. I remember my brother and I had belly boats and we were dinking around out on Evergreen Lake one day and my brother tied into about a 40 inch tiger muskie. Oh, wow. There was a a wedding there at the little lake house on Evergreen Lake. And pretty soon the wedding stopped and half of the audience was over against the fence watching my brother in this belly boat with a fly rod try and fight this huge tiger muskie onto the floor and land it while I was trying to capture pictures of it. So have some fond memories of Evergreen Lake. Yeah, that's that's a Colorado wedding if I've ever heard of one right there. Absolutely. Um, so now uh, let's let's get into to outside analytics. So I guess tell me tell me about outside analytics because again we were talking before we started recording here and and you guys have uh, a few sides of the business. I was really only familiar with um, the the Outly the app the the service that you guys offer. But tell us about tell me about outside analytics. Yeah, so I, I guess stepping back a little bit, um, co-founders of Outside Analytics and I worked in the aerospace and government sector previously and working for big big companies on big contracts. And we had the benefit of working on kind of a small team that was almost a startup within a larger, larger organization and made a lot of headway bringing new technology and new ideas into the government space. But we just had this inkling and this um, desire to go in a, in a different direction and kind of step out from the, um, the umbrella of a larger company and go do it ourselves and kind of figured now or never. And so we left 
the larger company in 2017 and started Outside Analytics um, with the sole purpose of um, building the Outly app and taking it to the market. So at first, it wasn't even called Outly. Um, we'd spent a while kind of ruminating on different ideas. And at the time, we were actually really looking into um, analytics for big game hunting. So things like draws, harvest prediction, we built our own tools um, trying to, as we kind of became obsessed, and I talked about that roller coaster life cycle of becoming passionate about the outdoors, kind of became obsessed with finding new places to go. Growing up, we'd always gone to the same places over and over, and we knew them well and loved them and had, I'd say, moderate success hunting in those places. But as I you know, kind of became more passionate about backcountry hunting or just hunting in the outdoors in general, wanted to really go explore and find new places. So over time had developed our own tools. So spreadsheets and, you know, hack together software programs that analyzed all sorts of different data, pulled in different map overlays, we're throwing maps on Google earth. And so we kind of as a personal passion project had built the um, underlying infrastructure just selfishly for our, you know, our own outdoor activities. And then as we started contemplating different opportunities where we could go leave and start a new business, um, it all kind of fell together. And so we originally were solely focused on the hunting market and started building, taking our prototypes, building on top of those, kind of enhancing those and going and talking to users. Um, we wanted to, we looked at bootstrapping and we were, we were very technical, the co-founders and I, we were systems engineers and kind of software architects, but we weren't rockstar developers. And so we wanted to pour gas on the fire and get some funding to go hire developers, move quickly because at the time we kind of saw a gap in the market and so we went and found some like-minded angel investors who gave us some funding to get started. Um, we jumped ship and I guess kind of the, the rest is history, but in, in many ways for the, the company, it was just beginning. Um, we, we worked with a software development firm that provided initial design and development and kind of went full force building out the initial features of the Outly website. And as I mentioned that the kind of the initial focus was really on hunting and analytics, but that grew and we realized there was a, I guess niche isn't the right word, but a need in the market for kind of a Swiss army knife or a tool that a multi-activity tool that covered everything. Cause I'm sure there's lots of maybe you or many other folks in the outdoors community. You don't just hunt in the fall, you know, you, um, that's true. Ski the, yeah, you ski in the winter. You might backcountry ski, you camp, you uh, maybe off-road, dirt bike, mountain bike, fish. And so really as we started to develop the concept for Outly, we looked at how can we bring all that together into one platform but not have it be too complex. So it's it's been a challenge, but we've been, I think, towing that line well of bringing features that really appeal to all of those different activities, but 
but not making the tools too cumbersome to really try to make them as for as complex as planning some outdoor activities can be try to really slim that down into the core set of tools you need but that you can leverage whether you're camping fishing hunting off-roading kind of a package that can cover all those activities and so we like i said we started with the website um got a huge response there a lot of income user base and then we rolled out the mobile app mainly to um, the website was always responsive and works great still does on a phone so the full website capabilities you can pull up outly.com and a web browser and use all of that on your phone but the big need came to be able to take take it offline and that's where we then moved into developing the outly app and have been focused on for both um, ios and android really maturing the app focused on taking all of the planning and the map layers and the core capabilities you need to view all that great data and navigate when you're offline and completely disconnected and just use the gps on your your phone when you have no service out there and uh, get all that same great information so that's been our our core focus recently yeah and when i was checking out the website yesterday i i noticed that there was and uh i was looking through it because you know you can sign up and it kind of it gives you um kind of a breakdown of what is offered on the website as opposed to what's offered like on the mobile app or or anything like that and and usually with any type of like mapping service or, or anything that you see in the marketplace usually there's you know, like the free web web-based version or the app, and, and you get these core features. And um, when I was looking on the website, I'm like, man, what, I can't find like what a premium like packages or something like that. So, what is the cost associated with uh, with the Outly app? So, good question. Um, we when we first started developing the app, we were planning on going down the same freemium model. So, freemium being where you have that kind of free limited offering. And then for any of the good stuff, you have to pay for it either monthly or on an annual basis. So early, I want to say almost two years ago, we actually rolled out a premium offering. And it was interesting when we saw it on unfold. Um, typically in the market, whenever you have a freemium offering, you're looking at about on average 3% of people that convert and pay for that premium service maybe 5% to 10% if you're just killing it. And as we started to see that same thing unfold and Outly was just another app amongst other outdoor apps out there. And we felt that we really had faster loading maps, some key hunt analytics features. Um, we had a lot condensed in our platform. We realized that by going down that freemium path, we were almost writing off 95% of our user base. Right. to be able to provide those, you know, those premium features and the things you really need to use it like offline maps. Um, we're just shutting the door on 95% of potential users and outdoor enthusiasts. And so something kind of cool happened with our company at the same time. Um, a lot of our folks in our network on our previous government side of the business actually started using the initial versions of Outly and started coming to us saying, hey, this is a better platform or this is a 
um, better mapping system than some of the things we have over here in the government world, you should submit proposals to adapt what you've built for Outly to some of our needs on the government side. And at first, um, we thought about it, we wanted to keep our focus on Outly, but we still had an appeal to the mission and the things we'd been working on previously on the government side. And so we put in a couple proposals and we won prime contracts with um, government agencies to adapt Outly for displaying their geospatial data. And that really um, kind of opened our eyes to a future path for the company where we can straddle that fence between the government world and the commercial sector and provide more benefit in doing so to both sides. And it's been been tricky to navigate, but I think as a company, we're in a unique position to continue doing that because we there's a lot of um, requirements and red tape, security, uh, bureaucracy, so to speak, in doing a lot of that government work. But based on our past experience, we know how to navigate um, all of the know how to navigate that whole world and get things done on the government side. And in the meantime, a lot of government contractors, you see big businesses, legacy systems um, in pockets and sectors. There's cool new technology on the government side, some of the best technology in the world. In others, some of the technology is outdated or stagnant. And so you see with on the government, there's a, a strong desire to bring in small business and uh, cutting edge technology from the commercial world. And so we really poised ourselves, like I said, to straddle that fence and bring cutting edge, cool new stuff to the government while also um, keeping a solid, stable base for the company. And so it was at about that time that we decided to just yank down the paywall on Outly, offer everything, including the mobile app, completely free going forward. And it's, you know, some of our focus on the business has definitely moved towards fulfilling the milestones and deliveries for those government contracts, but it's enabled us to not only keep the lights on, but grow, hire some of the best designers and developers in the business who kind of share the mindset and the company culture for, yep, we're going to work hard. We're going to deliver great things on these government contracts with taxpayer dollars, but with our time on the side, and we're still going to carve out time to focus on Outly and keeping Outly moving forward, but being able to open it up for free for everyone to use. Um, it's been an awesome opportunity. Yeah. Well, it, First off, the fact that you guys are able to get stuff done within the government um, and everything like that, I applaud you for that because I feel like there's a lot of things that uh, people wish the government would get done a lot quicker. So kudos to you guys for knowing what to do to get stuff done with them. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's definitely, there's a ton of opportunity and a ton of need on that side. And so it's it's been fun to find ways to get things done as efficiently as we can. I mean, at the end of the day, we're paying for all those capabilities as tax taxpayers. So, right. you know, in our best interest to um, make every dollar and get it, everything that we can do, everything that we can do, get it done 
um, quickly and efficiently and with the best technology we can bring to bear. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting as, as you kind of told the story and how everything unfolded that you guys started off working kind of in that, um, in the government sector and on that side of things. And then on the side, you, you kind of developed this passion project, you know, with you guys' love for the outdoors and hunting and, and just, you know, recreating outdoors and started to build Outly. And then the opportunity came to where you could, you know, essentially make some more money and utilize what you had developed with Outly for the government side of things. And then now you guys are at the point where, you know, you're able to do all this great work for the government with um, with outside analytics and the different platforms that you guys offer. And then use that essentially to fund, you know, Outly, the app, and, and keep that free for all of your users and utilize all of that same great technology, but do it at, you know, at no cost, which is, is really cool to see how that all kind of came full circle together. Yeah, we... I. I wish I could look back and say that we planned every aspect of the, that and we had some, you know, we had some ideas in mind, um, towards where we're at now when we started, but it's been a, certainly a fun ride to see it all unfold. And I mean, we're in a, a great position now, um, to benefit and support and provide cool products on, on both sides of that fence. Yeah. And one of the things that I really liked, um, when I was looking at the website at Outley's website last night was the draw odds, um, the, um, the harvest, uh, rate or percentage of success. Um, because usually when you see, there's not a lot of places out there, um, that offer all of that information in kind of one spot. And if it is, you know, you have to, you have to pay a good, a good price for it because that's, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of work that goes into, you know, collecting and analyzing all of that data to be accessible. Um, and I think to me, that seems like that'd be one of the things that really separates you guys from any, anyone else kind of in that, um, online or outdoor mapping space. That's, uh, that's really in the market right now. Yeah. I'm glad you found it. We've actually been looking at ways to bubble that up a bit more. Um, I know, with a lot of the hunt data and especially draws, there's a lot of marketing flowing around in the industry of who has the best. Um, at the end of the day, it just comes down to mathematics and equations and algorithms and simulations that model how the state draws run. And if you do that accurately, you're gonna have accurate data. Um, something that I haven't seen anyone else do that I hope people will check out is our harvest prediction layer. And I, I think one thing is Typically in the industry, you see all of those hunt analytics or draw odds, harvest data. You see it in huge spreadsheets, right? They're spreadsheets that you can filter, but you're still in a spreadsheet looking through all these numbers. And so trying to focus on, you know, keeping things intuitive, we chose a different direction with draws and other hunt data is overlaying them directly on the map and enabling more of a visual comparison between different units by color coding. And you still have those statistics for each hunt unit on the map um, as little labels where you have the hunt unit and then a percentage right under it, but also color coding. So enabling that same filtering, but really being able to visualize and see those better hunting opportunities as better hunt units jump out with color coding on the map um, was kind of a key differentiator that we wanted to bring to the market. 
But then underneath the covers, we had to be certain that all of our calculations uh, were just as as accurate, if not better than anyone else. And I think that was the a key thing we brought to bear were folks we hired from the government world who were doing very sophisticated processing algorithms um, for the aerospace community. Those were the guys on our team that built those calculations and simulations and the algorithms that go to generating things like draws. And then for the harvest prediction, um, we need to find a way to market this better, but we actually took a machine learning approach where we looked at all of the harvest data, even going back 15 to 20 years for some states and some species. And then we also pulled all of the historical weather throughout the year. And we built a machine learning model that compared the harvest statistics against the weather and bubbled out key features in the data that enabled us to not only start to see certain weather patterns that would affect, you know, conceptually we know as, as hunters that the weather is going to affect um, hunting in some capacity. You know, yeah, if you're absolutely lower elevation and you get a big early snow, those lower elevation units due to that big early snow, animals might migrate down earlier than they typically would. And you're going to have a higher success rate maybe that year at the lower elevations um, and then vice versa. And so conceptually, we know that that's the case as hunters or we've experienced it. But we wanted to put computer algorithms to work to go prove it and have machine learning identify those key weather features that were most correlated to hunting success. And so that's what we built with our harvest prediction layer. <clears throat> so it won't perfectly match the data from the prior year because it's looking at all available data. And not only that, but then based on the weather going forward, those, we can rerun those algorithms to update and even start to predict as it gets closer to the season uh, what the harvest rate is going to be in certain certain units and for certain hunting tags. So that was a, a feature that took a ton of time and effort to build and think through and get right. And we certainly want others like you to to find it and hopefully appreciate it. Yeah, because that's that's something that that I have not seen in any of the other um, platforms that are out there that are available is adding that the element of the weather into harvest predictions or anything like that, or even giving you historical data for a certain unit or anything like that, because you touched on it there. Like as, as hunters, we know that weather plays, you know, a huge factor, um, in potential success when you're out there. Like, like I think of, you know, coming from the whitetail world, uh, where I, you know, spend a lot of my time hunting, you know, once you, you know, once you get into certain parts of the year, you know, you start looking at, you know, your barometric pressure, you know, some guys talk about the moon phase, you know, the drop in temperature, you know, all these things that we all know about, but when you can add that into, um, uh, uh one place and, and give you all of that data all in one, it, I mean, it, it has to, you know, from a scouting standpoint, it has to, you know, more than cut your time in half that you would normally spend trying to potentially look all that stuff up. Because I would imagine as someone who is, wants to, whether you're out West and you want to hunt a new unit or you're like me and you're coming from the Midwest and, and want to, you know, try your hand at mule deer or elk or whatever the case is that you're looking at just, um, 
you know, harvest success rate over the years, you know, and your draw odds, you know, you're with the weather, you're almost just saying, well, the weather's going to be what it's going to be. You know, there's not much I can do about that. But if you can somehow take that into account, I mean, it just gives you kind of one more bullet in the chamber to, to make a better decision on where you want to actually hunt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the price of hunting tags alone, let alone, you know, taking a week off work and traveling across the country with your gear. Like you said, there's a lot of guys that are passionate about or have some guys do it every year. Other guys have a bucket list item to come say hunt elk or mule deer in the high country of the Rocky mountains. And so all of the, the time and the monetary investment in making that happen, <clears throat> come across guys all the time that have the right attitude and they show up in camp and they don't see any elk, but Hey, they had a good time. And I'm, I'm glad to see, um, those folks out there still enjoying their time, but for all those people that want to come out here and taste success. And then I think that success really leads to passion and can come full circle into more of that appreciation and, um, the, you know, just the devotion to wanting to conserve our public lands. I think success is a key part of that equation that leads to a deeper appreciation. So that's, it's another aspect of creating those specialized layers with more information to really not only help people get out there, but then tell them more precisely where they can go and hopefully have a better experience that ultimately leads to more of that deeper, not only awareness, but deeper appreciation. Yeah, because I think you kind of alluded to a good point there that, you know, you have a lot of people who especially from the, the the midwest or the east that come west to do these bucket list hunts or you know they're taking a a week off of work and they're driving you know 18 to 24 hours to get there and if you know if you're doing that every other year or maybe it's your it's your first time you plan this big trip and you get out there and you spend a week in the back country and you know you're you're unsuccessful you know it can be it can be kind of tough mentally to overcome right you're like man I spent all this time whether it was training for the mountains, you know, shooting your bow, uh, doing all this scouting and you go out there and, and, you know, it doesn't, nothing really comes to fruition in terms of a successful harvest. So, you know, they, they get home and then they start thinking about the following year and they're like, man, you know, I did all this work. Is it really worth it doing again? And, you know, a lot of people say it doesn't matter, right? Like I'm, I'm going to keep going and keep going. Like I just, they love to do it, but there's others kind of on the fringe of, of being, you know, passionate about, you know, let's say elk hunting. And it's, it's one more thing to kind of help tip scales in their favor to, like you said, keep them coming back to grow that appreciation for the outdoors and just take a, a deeper rooted interest in conservation and preserving these, you know, wild places that they're, they have the opportunity to hunt. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something too. I mean, we have a lot of conversations with other hunters that, <clears throat> they don't want us to reveal this information. There's guys that love to be able to dig and make it extremely hard to find information and go put boots on the ground and scout or hunt the same area for years um, to learn it. And they, they get upset when you provide information. Um, but from our standpoint, we're really just trying to give everyone an opportunity to, to taste that success and become more more appreciative and i mean i guess it who are we to say it's a rite of passage you have to go through 
Um, what I've seen personally is when you get friends or coworkers involved, they are kind of lukewarm, interested in it until they taste success and then they're hooked. Um, and that's been really fun for me to see. And some of my best, you know, backcountry archery hunting buddies did not hunt at all growing up and then just tagged along with me at first. And, you know, one of my good friends tagged along one year, didn't have a tag, didn't even have hunter safety, decided to go get hunter safety that next summer. Um, came out the next year, still didn't have a rifle, but just tagged along with me and um, picked up a leftover tag in Colorado and came across some mule deer and I handed in my rifle and he shot one of them. And then the rest is, you know, he just dove in full bore, picked up muzzleloader hunting, bow hunting, um, spends all of his weekends now out there in the backcountry, And so he's really kind of he dove in head over heels, honestly, in love with the outdoors, but it took kind of tasting success. So trying to give, give more folks out there that, that opportunity. Yeah. And I mean, I can, I can understand both, both sides of, of that coin where, you know, you have guys who, you know, don't want all that information so readily available and at your fingertips for, for other guys, because they're, they have that, um, you know, mentality where they want to get the boots on the ground, like you just said, and, and really, you know, work for that bull or that mule deer, excuse me, that mule deer, whatever the case is. But, you know, you have guys like me who aren't, you know, it, it's it's no fault of mine, but I live in Michigan, right? So it's not like I can take, you know, a week or 10 days off, you know, early in the summer, come out, do some scouting, get boots on the ground, come home and then go back, you know, two months later and actually hunt. I mean, there's there's not many people who have that that ability to, you know, invest that much time, um, to having boots on the ground. So anything you can do to kind of shorten that learning curve and have a, a hunter, you know, have a better chance of success and keep them more involved and keep them coming back. I mean, that's, that's just going to benefit, you know, the species itself, you know, hunting in general, um, in my opinion, they're, they're kind of their personal lifestyle. It's just going to enhance all of those things. So, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just look at, at the amount of funding coming in from non-resident out-of-state hunters, it's a massive benefit to our wild places and ecosystems and wildlife. So definitely shoring that up. And I, I think the other thing I would say is we can do machine learning, learning algorithms, we can create all this data that helps you identify a unit. We can create all these map layers that helps you identify some good habitat. At the end of the day, uh, I think the other thing that keeps us all coming back when you're chasing whitetails or mule deer or elk, there, there's kind of an innate um, experience or knowledge that you can only come by by having boots on the ground and being out there and truly finding the animals. You know, none of the data that we provide in Outley is going to pinpoint exactly where you can go kill, you know, a 350 inch bull elk. <laughs> We're going to point you in the right direction, but the weather, hunting pressure, everything else is going to make those animals move. And you're still going to have to, you know, hone your hunting craft and learn from experience to be successful we're just kind of overcoming that initial barrier of entry and pointing you to a, a location where instead of driving out here for a week from Michigan and maybe not even seeing any elk, 
you'll at least have some encounters, you know, or have some opportunities and have more of a chance, like you said, to keep coming back, grow that passion until you've ultimately accumulated enough woodsmanship and knowledge to be successful. Yeah. Because like you said, it's still, it's still hunting, right? No matter what the information you have in front of you um, and how great that that is. I mean, you still have to, you still have to locate the animals once you're in the unit. You still have to, you know, potentially put a stock on or call them in and you still have to make the shot, right? There's still, you know, like you said, that's just, that just kind of overcomes that, that bear, that entry, that barrier to entry and helps move you in the right direction because yeah, I don't care, you know, how, how great, I mean, if you can put someone on a herd of, you know, a herd of elk, but if they can't do the right things and, you know, close the gap and make the shot. I mean, it's, it's kind of all for not, you know? Yep, exactly. We can't in Outley app, we can't tell you what the wind thermals are or where the elk are going to move, you know, that day or what their pattern is. We can give you, you know, good information, like I said, to point you in the right direction and get you in a good area, but then it's up to you. You know, the, all we can do from there is help you navigate and find your way around the terrain and get back to camp safely at night. But, um, the onus is on you once we get you into that good spot to go get it done and learn and make it happen. Yeah. So now aside from the hunting um, portion that we've talked about with Outley, what are um, some of the other features that other people who uh, like to recreate outdoor can use? Because I know it's not just for, you know, um, hunting and fishing, but, you know, other people can utilize it as well. So tell me about that. Yeah. So, no, thanks for asking. I know we've talked a lot about the hunting aspect and hunting was really the key driver when we started Outly. And then as we've navigated and gotten feedback from users and really seen the usage of Outly, um, it's expanded quite a bit beyond hunting where hunting um, hunters are now kind of the um, minority of users of the Outly platform. So the other prime activities, if you go to the Outly website, you'll see that we, um, we focus on our camping and then outdoor rec or off-road vehicles. So ATVs, four-wheeling, um, even mountain biking, dirt biking, um, those aspects. And camping in particular, we've just, we've seen huge growth um, of our user base, especially in the last year. I think COVID has been for the outdoors. It's been kind of a double-edged sword. People can't travel on airplanes as easily and people are exploring more locally, um, people are getting more interested in doing activities like hiking or camping. Um, so we've seen a, a massive growth in our camping features, um, especially dispersed camping. And that's another one where we actually talked to Colorado Parks and Wildlife a while ago about the state of camping in Colorado and especially camping in campgrounds and state parks. I mean, I grew up with parents that did not want to camp in a campground. We camped in national forest or BLM and tried to get off the beaten path away from people as much as we could. Um, but when we talked to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, they said there wasn't, there's not necessarily a, a demand problem or a demand problem. It was more of a supply problem when it comes to those campgrounds. They're all full, they're booked six months in advance. Um, and then when we looked at dispersed camping, we see a problem where dispersed camping areas near a 
population centers, so west of Boulder, west of Denver, um, continue to get shut down just due to overuse. But those are the places that are close, they're convenient, and people know where to go. So our angle with dispersed camping is to really help build a larger inventory of campsites out there or spread awareness, um, not only of places that you can camp, but how to go about doing it the right way. So we think that's a, a key going forward in Outly is not just providing the utility of finding places to go, but starting to augment, and you'll see this in certain places already within the application, um, augment with that educational aspect or be really just promoting being good stewards of our wild places. So if we can spread the people out, you know, across the, say across the national forest more and limit the impact on those high use areas. Um, Cause when we talk to people, they don't want to be on top of each other. They go to a dispersed camping area. Um, they want to spread it out. Right. So if we provide tools that enable that, but then really educate people the same way, pick up after, you know, pick up after yourself. Don't create new places to camp that aren't already, you know, an established pull off with a rock fire ring. You know, I mean, pick up your toilet paper or bury it in a location far from water. So really trying to weave those educational aspects into all of our messaging on social media. You know, if you go to the website and each of the layers, we've started adding little information icons next to each layer and then popping articles or videos or more information in there, promoting doing it the right way. Or if you, you know, you're interested in coming to Outly and you want to learn about dispersed camping, almost a rite of passage is you have to read through our dispersed camping article and learn how to do it the right way before you find out information to jump in the map and find places. Um, so I know we kind of went down a rabbit hole there, but <laughs> camping, <laughs> camping has certainly become kind of a, the central fixture of Outly lately. And I, I think that's just natural because when we talk about our initial mission of trying to provide a more of a multi-activity tool where you could find all that information in one place, camping kind of emerges as something, a central activity to backcountry hunting, off-roading, fishing, almost all of the folks that participate in those other activities, they all, all go out and camp. Um, the other kind of surprise feature, when we were, we were looking at places that we could pull in better camping data, um, and we stumbled across a website and that led down another path where we started a partnership with swimminghole.org and so we, it was kind of a one-off that didn't really fit well with Outly um, and the main activities that we supported, but it fit well with the overall, the overall goal of just identifying places and, and um, really building that inventory of more places spread out that people could go have cool outdoor experiences that were you know, different than your typical experience. And so we teamed up with swimminghole.org which was at the time more of a kind of an outdated website, but they'd been around collecting all of this great swimming hole information for the past 25 years. And they were looking for a home um, that was a more you know, modern digital platform to host all that great information. So we, we teamed up with them almost a year ago. And so we have a massive amount of 
you know, users now flowing into Outly that are searching for swimming hole data. So that one's been kind of another, another fun surprise that we just stumbled into and now we're glad to have it in there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool feature that, um, I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have kind of their, you know, depending on where they're at, their own little off the beaten path kind of water hole. But, you know, when, when people go out of town or they go on a, a camping trip, like you just talked about, yeah, they, they want to know those kind of call it maybe like local only type spots, right. Where they can experience, you know, what that area is really all about and, and get away from people and things like that. So that's, that's something that I didn't know about. And, th- and that's, that's a really cool feature to, to have in there. And, and going back to what you were talking about with, with camping, um, yeah, that's, that's something that, that I noticed as well, that like with, with COVID and all the shutdowns and the restrictions and everything like that, that a lot more people are spending their time outdoors because, you know, there was a point in time, you know, you know, mid to late last year where that was really the only thing you could do regardless of, you know, what state you were in. You just, you, you, you couldn't really participate in anything else. So to get outdoors it I think it maybe allowed people to kind of rekindle a passion for the outdoors or hopefully kind of light a flame to get them into the outdoors and maybe their kids into the outdoors. And that's a, that's something that it's, it seems like camping is kind of a, almost a, a lost art form, right? I mean, when, when I was young, you know, campers were, you know, you, you only had a camper if you were, you know, very well off, right? If you were rich or something like that, you know, everyone slept in tents. And then now it's almost like you, you people want to kind of get back into that, right? They want to get further away from people and, you know, they want to do it in a minimalistic fashion. So to have all that information and access to different dispersed camping is something that's really cool. And I can see how that's kind of become the, the focal point of the Outly app. Yeah, it's it's been been fun just to see it evolve and see the feedback we've received. I mean, I'm thankful to all our users along the way. People are great about emailing us with suggestions. I mean, even right now, we're going through another period of user research and usability testing to really try and stay true to it. We don't want to just keep adding more and more features because we think it'll become, Outly will become cumbersome. But what are the key things that people really like or the information that people really need? Um, and focus on bringing those aspects in. But camping has definitely been kind of a path that things have um, started to go down recently and then providing all those different flavors of camping. You know, we still show campgrounds and state parks and national forest and BLM campgrounds, um, even private campgrounds are starting to become populated in Outley. And so it's, it's really just about, I think, enabling that experience that, Hopefully, maybe the double edge or the silver lining of, of COVID is giving people some appreciation to look more at experiences instead of material things. And hopefully, they can go find whatever experience they're looking for within Outly, whether it's any of those activities or it's maybe not one of the key activities that we focus on, but the tools can still be used to go you know, help people find those experiences that just really either kindle or rekindle, you know, that passion for environment and wild places out there. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. And you had touched on it when you were talking about the camping that you have almost like a, a video or a short tutorial about, you know, kind of the right ways to go about, um, 
dispersed camping and, and the things that you should do to, to make sure that you're maintaining or not uh, overusing certain spots, which kind of ties into, you know, uh, conservation as a whole and kind of a bigger picture on that. Um, obviously outside analytics is 2% certified. So what was it, or, or how did that process look with becoming 2% certified? Yeah. So I, I can't remember exactly when we found out about 2%. Um, it was a few years ago when we were in the throes of building outly up and we were looking at different partners in the industry doing competitive research and, um, came across 2%. And I think it immediately presented 2% compared. There's lots of other organizations out there, but 2% became a no brainer for us um, just because we really like the aspect of not only giving back financially, um, but also committing time to giving back. And so I, I think it's, it's great what 2% has done, recognizing that it's, not just financial and providing money to different organizations that help conservation, but really um, enabling or empowering companies to make it part of their company culture to volunteer and, and give back not only with their, their money, but um, with their time. And so I think it's, there's also maybe a, a bandwagon effect too, that by joining a group like 2%, conservation um i guess there's two aspects of it it gives companies credit those companies out there that are doing things for the right reason and putting in good work towards conservation and preservation for future generations they should absolutely be able to take credit for that and then at the same time hopefully that encourages other companies out there to jump on the bandwagon and, and do the same thing yeah and i i agree and, and like anyone can, can can give money right and there's a lot of um, companies out there that, that donate to conservation um, from a financial side of things but you know let's say you pool all that money together from all these different companies or individuals whatever the case is that money has to go towards something let's say it's you know pulling fences or habitat improvement or whatever you're gonna need people to actually do the work once you have all that money so the fact that you have companies who are doing both um, is is awesome and you know ever since you know personally learning about two percent joining two percent as a business myself and seeing all the other companies that are involved with two percent i mean you know i say it on kind of the beginning of every podcast or at the end one of the two there and it, whatever you're looking for whether it's gear um it's it's an application for helping you hunt it's uh you know books um workout supplements workout program whatever the case is there's probably a company out there that's two percent certified that offers you know what it is that you're looking for so it, it's cool to see that it's not just something for hunting it's you know all companies i mean we have you know two percent has you know real estate agents who are two percent certified so the list goes on and on to see all the different companies that are, you know, care so much about conservation and, and maintaining these wild places. Yeah, it's been great to see since we first came across 2% and got certified a couple years ago, just the growth and how many more companies. And like you said, the diversity of types of companies that are getting certified. Um, it's great to see that occurring. And I think as a co-founder of a company, I mentioned it earlier, but 
just passing on to any other potential companies out there that might listen to this that are considering becoming 2% certified or at least establishing some type of conservation volunteer um, commitment within your company, it has a huge impact just for your company culture. I mean, when we go out and this fall due to COVID, a lot of our other volunteer opportunities that we've done previously um, weren't available anymore. Some work we were doing in schools, couldn't do that anymore. So we just went out as a team to a kind of a heavily traffic dispersed camping area west of Boulder in the foothills and spent all day out there and cleaned up trash. And we hope that, you know, that passes on that people that see that it's clean when they arrive are less likely to leave trash there. Um, and then really promote just being stewards of those places. But at the end of the day, the, all the employees and it was a great bonding experience. You know, we cooked, cooked burgers in the parking lot and drank some beers afterwards and, and had a great time um, doing it. So it, it has intangible benefits, I guess, to all the companies that become involved in anything like 2%. Yeah. And that's how you do a cleanup burgers and beers, uh, at the truck when you're done, there's, <laughs> you can yeah, sign me up for something like that. That's for sure. Mandatory <laughs> celebration. Yeah. And you know, and that's the thing is I think a lot of people maybe don't understand, or, you know, for those that have already committed, they, they realize like, you know, 1% of, of your time, whether it's an individual or a company is 21 hours. I mean, that's, that's not a big commitment. So, you know, if you take a, a company that's, you know, even as small as, you know, five people, right? You, the, you know, the whole company goes out for a morning, clean up a trailhead, volunteer with a, a conservation, a local conservation organization, and you've met your requirements. And I know a lot of people are doing, you know, much more than just the kind of the, the minimum of the 21 hours that uh, is required for certification. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think um, it's a, it's an easy bar to hit to get certified. But then I think most companies will find once they start participating that there becomes a desire to to put in a lot more than that, especially the companies that are really passionate about conservation. Yeah, because you, you, you're working towards something that's that's bigger than yourself. Right. Because you're what the, the work that that you or your company is doing is, is going to have an effect on, you know, you know, potentially thousands of people, depending upon the work that you're doing, or, you know, an entire herd of elk or mule deer, depending uh, on the work that you're doing, or, you know, stream cleanups for Trout Unlimited, you know, the list goes on and on on all the different um, activities that you can participate in. So, yep. Yeah. So now what are some of the uh, organizations that you guys are giving back to? So I'd say financially with memberships, um, and other donations give back to different conservation organizations like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Trout Unlimited, uh, Ducks Unlimited, pretty much any conservation group that's just focused on healthy ecosystems, clean water and habitat improvement. Um, and then I think giving back in ways of our time and volunteer We've done some work with volunteers for Outdoors Colorado. They're a Denver-based group that's been around for, I think, about the last 30 to 40 years. And they do everything from just local trail cleanups and trail restoration to habitat improvement. Um, we missed out, but they did a, they did a local um, volunteer opportunity about a year ago to remove a bunch of invasive fish species from a local stream. 
So they do a bunch of great work kind of across the board from things that are real easy to just go pick up trash in your local, you know, hiking trail to, you know, more of those in-depth um, conservation habitat restoration projects. Um, another big one that we were really excited, I mentioned earlier that with COVID and um, schools being in a, a weird state right now, we haven't been able to participate participate in as much as we'd like to, but it's a, a, prog or a program through Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and it's funded by Great Outdoors Colorado. It's called uh, SOL, which is Schools and Outdoor Learning Environments, and they're big on getting families and kids introduced to potential outdoor activities. So they go into a lot of more um, city schools in Denver or even underprivileged communities and you have CPW folks going into classrooms, providing different training. And then they set up throughout the year at all the different schools, uh, multiple family nature nights where they bring in a bunch of booths and they have, they have certain animals or mounts and they've got wildlife biologists talking about animals and different opportunities to go camping or fishing. They do some archery courses right there in school gymnasiums. They do, you know, practicing fishing and while well, learning about places that they could go fishing, even locally in Denver or nearby. So Seoul was a great um, volunteer organization that we really got involved with before COVID and it's been paused, but we're hoping for things to get back to normal here in schools, um, especially into the this next school year so they can ramp that back up. And then, like I said, just, you know, local team volunteering, kind of coming up with our own volunteer outdoor cleanup activities or restoration projects. Yeah. And that, that soul program that you just mentioned, that's, that's something that's really cool because I think, you know, from, from the outside looking in, if, if you think about something like Denver and knowing, you know, how close it is and how, you know, for the most part, easily accessible, the mountains and just the outdoors in general are to, to that, that area you still have a lot of people who just don't have the opportunity, whether they they come from, um, you know, a less fortunate family or, you know, they just have some, you know, they, they have a lot more barriers, let's say, to, to be able to access those things, to, to give them that opportunity to learn and give them a look into something outside of what they're used to is can be a really powerful thing, especially at a young age. Yeah. And, and sometimes that is a barrier to entry that's not that high. You know, it just becomes the education of where can I go? What can I do? What do I need to go do something like fishing? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you can go, you know, kids can fish for free and you can go to Walmart and pick up a $15 rod and some line and, you know, a few spinners and you're off to having a great experience that might kindle that passion to grow and you might become an outdoor enthusiast. So yeah, it's just, I think education and opportunity of just providing awareness, um, of those experiences and just how to get started and how to go about doing it the right way kind of is the recurring theme and all this stuff. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a, that's a great thing. I mean, education and knowledge is, is such a powerful tool that I think a lot of people kind of tend to overlook. Um, even though we all, we all know what it is. We all know that, you know, it's a very powerful thing. We tend to kind of forget about it. So, you know, the work that you guys are doing there at outside analytics to, you know, from, from the Outly app to, provide all this information for, you know, new or experienced hunters to the volunteer work that you're doing with soul 
um, and other local organizations there to try to, you know, get people involved that may not have the opportunity is awesome. And I really commend you guys for that. Yeah, thanks. And like I said, there's a huge intangible benefit. I mean, we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves and those types of um, all of that type of work provides that. So we're just, I think, grateful that we took the leap from a big business a few years ago and kind of plunged into the small business world and all of the exciting opportunities that have unfolded along the way. Um, I think we're just fortunate and grateful and looking forward to where things go. You know, we've got lots of big plans coming up for Outly and looking forward to rolling those out. Yeah, well, that's great. I definitely uh, look forward to giving it a try myself um, after looking through everything last night and hopefully planning planning a Western hunt here in the next year or so. So, no, I'm definitely looking forward to giving it a shot. Okay, great. Sounds good. Yeah, shoot me any notes as you come across things or have questions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Brett, I know you're kind of up against the clock there, so I appreciate you taking some time to hop on the podcast and, and telling us more about Outside Analytics and Outly and, and you know all the work that you guys have done, and, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys have coming down the pike in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for your time as well, Marcus, and all the, the work you're doing for conservation. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Talking to, talking to companies and people like you is, uh, is an easy part of the job for sure. Well, cool. Sounds good. All right, all take right. care of yourself, Thanks. Brett. Grab me on and have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you do the same. Thanks. All right. Well, there you are, guys. Uh, big shout out to Brett for taking some time to hop on the podcast today. Uh, I'd like to thank the partners over at Stone Glacier. Be sure and check them out at stoneglacier.com. I would also like to thank our newest partner, Go Hunt. Be sure and check them out at gohunt.com. And obviously, I'd like to thank the partners over at 2%. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website fishandwildlife.org and there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop for your gear or your guiding services your coffee your books really anything under the sun i also encourage you guys to give two percent a follow on social media where they're going to post nothing but positive conservation driven content in your feeds so again if you'd like to learn more about two percent for conservation you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, Remember, stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.